0: Bookie. Things are getting real in the college football world, so there's no better time than right now to jump in on all the action at MyBookie. They make it simple for you guys. Just go to mybookie.ag, use the promo code UGA to get a 50% bonus for all new users added to your initial deposit, and boom, you are ready to go, win some cash, put that in your pocket, put it to use during the holiday season, maybe save a little bit for yourself, do something nice for yourself, but you can make it all happen at my Pookie. All right, guys, I am your host, Tyler, and here we are. Championship Saturday is just three short days away. I can't wait. You can't wait. Nobody can wait. But in the meantime, I figured it's time to do our deep dive into this SEC championship matchup between the Georgia Bulldogs and the Alabama Crimson Tide, the two Titans of the Southeastern Conference. All of you longtime listeners, you know how we do, but for those of you who have maybe just found us and are checking out the podcast for the first time today, getting ready for the SEC Championship game, I know you're out there because the number of listeners of this podcast is growing by the episode. So first off, welcome. We appreciate you being here, but for all of you newer listeners, the goal here for us with these deep dive previews is to give you guys the most in-depth breakdown of each of Georgia's games. We talk storylines, we talk personnel, we talk matchups, we talk schemes, we talk keys to the game. We look at these games from every possible angle to try to give you guys the most comprehensive look into each game that you're going to find anywhere. That's the goal. And today is going to be no different. In fact, with a game of this magnitude, we're going to try to up our game. We're going to try to bring the A game, baby. We try to do that every week, but especially a week like this. So that's coming up, but first, really quickly here, before we get into breaking down this game and diving deep into all the details, the personnel, schemes, matchups, keys, all that stuff, I do want to take just a few minutes at the outset of the show here to discuss the college football playoff rankings that were released last night, the penultimate CFP rankings ahead of Championship Saturday. I did touch on this with the mailbag episode, but at that point, it was like two hours before the rankings were released, so I didn't exactly know what they would look like. I had ideas, but wasn't exactly sure. But now I know. Now we've seen them. And I have a couple of takeaways coming out of those rankings. Now, I told you guys on the mailbag episode that I recorded yesterday, again, prior to those rankings coming out, that I had a strong feeling that we needed to win this SEC championship game to get into the college ball playoff. And my basis for that opinion, for those feelings, was what I've seen in the past. There have been multiple occasions where Georgia has gone into championship Saturday inside the top four of the CFP rankings, only to lose to a very good either Alabama team or LSU team, one of the best best teams in college ball history in the case of that 2019 LSU team. And drop those games and then fall out of the top four, get jumped by Oklahoma, who was outside the top four coming in championship Saturday, but played a lesser opponent in the Big 12. They won their conference championship. The committee clearly put an emphasis on conference championships and allowed them to jump Georgia. Now, saying that, I'm, I'm clearly aware this is a different scenario, a different year. We are the number one team in the country. We're not at number three or number four like we were in 2018 and 2019, respectively. Different story. We don't have that albatross of a loss to South Carolina at home like we did in 2019. Fair, obviously. But over the years, my faith in the college football playoff committee has waned to almost nothing. I just don't trust them. I think there's too many people with too many competing interests and too many ways that they're looking at these teams, too many different ideas on how to rank teams, too many different people putting emphasis on different things. I don't even know if they actually share a consensus on what they're actually charged with doing. Is it the most deserving team like with the resume or is it who we think are the best teams? I don't think in the past there really has been a consensus there and there's just been so many inconsistencies in how they rank teams and that's that's something that I have felt strongly about for several years now. So my thought process coming into this week is we better freaking win! Because if we don't win, I just do not trust the committee to put us in the college football playoff. I still strongly believe that even if we happen to some way lose to Alabama, which is possible, it's a very good football team. If we lost to them, I still believe that we are one of the four best teams in the country. Maybe even still the best team in the country, probably still the best in the country, but certainly one of the four best teams in the country. But again, I've just had such little faith in the committee to get those things right. I mean, guys, there's a reason why... The CFP semifinal games, the average margin of victory in those games has been 19 points. It's because the committee freaking sucks at what they do. Historically, going back to 2014 when this whole thing started, they have leaned more heavily on the quote-unquote most deserving, the resume, and not as much on the best teams. But there were some encouraging developments last night. First off, The first thing that I noticed that really caught my eye in those rankings is where Ohio State ended up. I feel like that's very instructive. Ohio State did drop. They dropped from number two, but they only dropped from two to six, which means they stayed ahead of both Texas at number seven and Alabama at number eight. The fact that Ohio State still stayed ahead of both Texas and Alabama tells me the committee realizes, yeah, they lost to Michigan, good football team on the road, but they're still better than Texas. They're still better than Alabama. And that gives me hope that even if we did lose to Alabama, the committee might very well still look at it and say, you know what? Georgia is still a better football team than Texas. Georgia, I know they just lost to Alabama straight up, but if you look at the totality of the season, anything can happen in a one-game setting we feel like Georgia's still a better team. Now, I I still have a hard time wrapping my head around that one because if we lose to Alabama head-to-head on a neutral field, I have a hard time believing the committee is going to keep us ahead of Alabama. Now, the thing is, the gap right now, the separation is there. We're number one, they're number eight. Are they going to make up that much separation with a win over us? I mean, that's a stretch. That's quite the jump. But again, head-to-head, the committee... Historically, has put an emphasis on head-to-head. Even right now, in how they're ranking teams, they have continued consistently to keep Texas ahead of Alabama because head-to-head, they're honoring that. Same thing with Washington and Oregon. It's pretty clear to me the committee thinks that Oregon is better than Washington. That's why they have Oregon ranked as highly as they do as the as the highest-ranked one-loss team. But they're honoring the head-to-head. Washington still undefeated, and they beat Oregon head-to-head. But I do think in the case of Texas, it's interesting, man. If we lose to Alabama, are we going to drop below Texas, even if Texas wins the Big 12 title? Because they're going to play number 18 Oklahoma State. Oklahoma State lost to South Alabama, okay? So is that going to be enough, a win over number 18 Oklahoma State, who lost to South Alabama, and who had to come from behind to beat a terrible BYU team at home to even get into the Big 12 championship game? Is a win over that team... In combination with a potential Georgia loss to Alabama, would that be enough to have the Longhorns jump Georgia, to jump us? I think the way that the committee handled Ohio State gives us reason to believe that the answer is no. I don't believe that it would be enough for Texas to jump us. And you guys, you probably, I'm sure you've heard this, there has been no team in the history of the college football playoff dating back to 2014 when it all started that was ranked 7th or worse in the penultimate CFP rankings before Championship Saturday to make it to the cultural playoff. Now, I guess there's always a first time for everything, but it hasn't happened to date. We've had two instances of the number six team in these penultimate rankings getting in the playoff. We were one of those back in 2017, but six is as low as it's gone in terms of being able to get in to the actual playoff. I think Texas might be screwed. I think Texas has to hope that we beat Alabama and Louisville beats Florida State. If that happens, then I think Texas can get in. But still, you got Ohio State right now sitting there ahead of Texas. And that begs the question, does a win over Oklahoma State do enough for Texas to jump that one spot and jump Ohio State? I would say probably in that scenario, but there's no guarantee. But back to George here, back to our team. With seeing how those rankings played out last night, I do now feel like there's a much better chance that we can still get into the college playoff, be selected as one of those final four teams, even with a loss to Alabama. Now, there's a caveat here. We can't get blown out, right? Obviously, just go out and win. Like, let's do that. That's the easiest route to getting in. Let's guarantee it. Be the number one seed and go play in New Orleans. But if we're going to lose, let's keep it relatively close. If you get blown out, all bets are off. But even if it's a close-ish loss to Alabama... I, I now feel a lot better about our chances of, of still finding a way to get in, even potentially ahead of a Texas team, even if Texas doesn't lose. Here's how I think it's going to play out: Michigan's going to be in, they're going to beat Iowa. Iowa's terrible. The winner of the Pac-12 championship is going to be in. Florida State, if they win, I think they're going to be in. I personally would not put them in, and here's why I would not put Florida State in. I know they've earned it to this point, and and you can say you can scream about fairness. What's fair? But again, I go back to the 19-point margin of victory in these college football playoffs to be finals. Far too often, the committee has leaned on resume. And here's the problem with leaning on resume. All things are not created equal in the world of college football. All conferences are not created equal. Traditionally, even going back to like pre-CFP stuff, going back to the BCS, going back to when just the AP era, there's always this thought in college football that if a team is undefeated, that means they're better than any team with one loss. They're more deserving. And I've always been like, that's crazy because you don't play the same schedules. That's such a narrow-minded way to look at. It's it. such an incomplete way to look at. it. I think we're slowly starting to come around and realize, yeah, that's actually true. But that's why I don't think Florida State should be in because I don't believe that Florida State is one of the four best teams in the country. I mean, let me ask you this, guys. If you are any of the other three teams that are in the college World playoff and Florida State happens to get in, If you polled every single team, the other three teams that that got in, every single one of them would almost unanimously—not almost—they would unanimously say, "We want Florida State." Why? Because Florida State doesn't have Jordan Travis, and even if they did, Florida State still, in my opinion, is not a top four team in the country. They would want Florida State, and Florida State would get blown out by whoever they play. I know that's terrible for the players, and I know that seems unfair. But the committee's charge is picking the four best teams. And that's another development that was encouraging to me last night. Bill Hancock, the executive director of the CFP himself, straight up said, our goal, what we are asked to do, our directive is to pick the four best teams. Far too often in the past with cultural playoff, I've heard the most deserving resume and those kind of things thrown out there. And he was straight up asked, like most deserving resume, where does that come into play? And he straight up said... It doesn't. That's not what we're asked to do. That's not supposed to factor in. We're supposed to pick the four best teams. And win or lose on Saturday against Alabama, I firmly, I will argue to the death. I will fight to the death saying that Georgia is one of the four best teams in the United States of America this year in 2023. So yeah, I don't think this is as much of a do or die game as I maybe felt on Monday coming into the week. Now, would I feel completely confident if we lost Alabama on Saturday night? Would I be able to sleep Saturday night going into Sunday morning? No, no, absolutely not. I would be an absolute nervous wreck. I'd be on pins and needles. I'd be pacing relentlessly. I'd be biting every freaking fingernail I have into oblivion. So there's no guarantee. We're talking about human beings. There's no guarantee of the committee. Again, I don't really trust them. I still don't really trust them. I just think there's some signs pointing positively in our direction here in terms of our, our ability to maybe possibly get in even if we lose to Alabama. But I still don't really trust the committee. So what would really help us still, I say, if Florida State loses and Texas loses, we're a shoe in right? Because in that scenario, Pat 12 champ, Michigan would be in. Then probably Alabama I think they would probably jump Ohio State if they beat the number one team in the country and I think we would probably also sneak in there as well now if Texas lost and Florida State won it's an interesting conversation do you take a 12-1 in Georgia over a 13-0 Florida State with no Jordan Travis I would argue yes I would, I would take Georgia I think we have a better resume there's a reason why we're number one right now and they're all the way at number four I don't think them beating Louisville and us losing Alabama would really change it or should change that. So if one of those two teams, Florida State or Texas, loses, I think we would still have a really, really good shot of getting in. I think we'd be better off for us if it was Texas that lost. Well, that's not going to happen. They're not losing to Oklahoma State. But if they both lose, of course, like we're unequivocally, and I'll sleep like a baby because I know they were still in. But last thing here before we get into the deep dive preview, also just win, just win and we don't have to worry about it. But all right, guys, before we move into our deep dive preview, I do quickly just one more time want to remind you about our great friends at my bookie. We've got some of the biggest games of the college ball season going on this weekend in Championship Saturday, so make sure, if you haven't already, if you've been on the fence, now's the time. Jump in on the action. Go to mybookie.ag, sign up for a brand new account, guys. They make it easy for you. It's not one of these things where they they make it this long, drawn-out process. No, it's quick. It's easy. 30 seconds a minute, depending on how good you are with the computer, and boom, you are in, ready to go. Just go to mybookie.ag. When you do so, use our exclusive promo code UGA to get a 50% bonus on on your first deposit and right away you can start getting in on the action they've got your traditional point spreads they've got obviously point totals they've got a ton of live betting options a new cash out early option prize packages prize pools all sorts of options casino stuff if you're into that so many ways for you guys to bet and make some money this holiday season so jump in on it today at mybookie.ag. anything anytime anywhere only with my bookie all right guys Enough with all that stuff. Let's get into this breakdown. That's what you really came here for today. So let's get to it. So Alabama. Alabama. This is a good football team, guys, and they have continued to improve and get better as the season has gone on. In fact, I would I don't know if I would go as far as say they're peaking right now, but I do think They have been playing their best football the last month of the season. Now, part of that, I would chalk up to the competition. They have not really played anyone with much of a pulse. And even though Auburn doesn't really have much of a pulse, losing by 21 points at home to Mexico State the prior week, Auburn, as we know, pushed them to the absolute brink. But this is still a good football team that has gotten better as the season has progressed. And it's one of the, if not the most talented teams overall in terms of their totality of their roster. They're really freaking good, but... They are not as good as Georgia. They are not. It's that simple, guys. They are not as good as we are. Now, does that mean that they are incapable of beating us? Absolutely not. The gap between the two teams is not so wide that Alabama does not have a chance to beat us. Clearly, they are good enough to beat us if we do not play to our capabilities, and that's always a possibility in college football. We've seen that time and time again this year. We have not always brought our A game. Now, in big games, more often than not, we do, whether that's Kentucky, whether it was a hyped-up matchup earlier in the year, whether it's Missouri, whether it's Ole Miss, obviously, on the road in a hostile environment, in Knoxville. In those big settings, we typically bring our best effort. you can even go back to last year in 2021, that seems to be the trend here with these Georgia football teams. So I'm hopeful and expecting us to play A very strong football game but you never really know and if we don't play to our our top level if we don't play to our capabilities yes and Alabama does they are capable of beating us they are they are plenty good enough to do that but make no mistake about it guys we are clearly the better football team we have been all season long and that has not changed don't believe me need some evidence Got a a Clause of Bama fan out there listening in, trying to see what what the other side's got to say, and you're sitting there saying, oh, no, 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 Georgia's not clearly better than Alabama. Well, statistically, yeah, it's really not particularly close. If you look at total yardage margin, which those of you listening to the show for a long time, you know what I'm talking about. I use this stat a lot, especially at this point in the season. I think it's very instructive. For your newer listeners, when I say yardage margin, if you're not familiar with that stat, what you do is you take the total yards team has gained and you subtract from that the total yards that they have given up. How many yards have they outgained their opponents by during the season? That's what total yardage margin is, all right? Well, Georgia leads the country. We are plus twenty four twenty five, which means that we have outgained our opponents by a total of 2,425 yards this season. Again, leading the country. Alabama, solid, good, but Alabama is plus 1,157, which means they have outgained their opponents by a combined 1,157 yards a season. We have more than doubled up Alabama in yardage margin. We are dominating our opponents by a far greater margin than Alabama has all season long. And if you look at the statistical matchups, like if you match up the Georgia offense versus the Alabama defense, the Bama offense versus the Georgia defense, there is only one statistical category that I really paid all that much attention to that Bama has an edge in the matchup. And it's red zone offense for Bama versus the Georgia red zone defense. You guys know I've been railing against the red zone defense for Georgia all season long. It has not been up to par. It's not been close to good enough. Alabama's 19th nationally in scoring touchdowns and their red zone touchdown percentage at 71%. We are 67th. We've gotten better. We were like in the hundreds for a while there, but we're still giving up touchdowns on 60% of our opponent's red zone possessions. Now, the caveat there is we're still one of the best teams in the country in terms of allowing opponents to get into the red zone. We are 11th nationally in opponent red zone possessions. We've only had opponents get in the red zone 30 different times throughout the year. But that's the only edge, statistically, that Alabama has in this game. And I don't do this thing where I say, okay, well, what's the Alabama offense and the Georgia offense? That's not how I match this up. I match the Alabama offense versus Georgia defense because that's who plays each other on the field. The Georgia offense, the Bama offense are never going to take the field against each other. And if you look at the matchups, that is really the only one that I pay attention to. That think has really much relevance in the game that Bama has an edge in. If you look at Total offense and defense, if you look at yards for play, offense and defense, scoring offense, scoring defense, FEI, which is an efficiency rating, passing offense, defense, rushing offense, defense, sacks, explosive plays, third downs, red zones. Georgia has the edge in every category except for the Bama offense versus Georgia defense when it comes to scoring touchdowns in the red zone versus limiting opponents scoring touchdowns in the red zone. Now, there are a couple that are pretty close, like the Georgia rushing offense and the Bama rushing defense. We're 31st nationally in rushing offense, 185 yards a game. Bama's 35th in rushing defense, 128 yards a game. Relatively close to if you want to call it a draw, fine. Sacks, similar. The one big strength Alabama has defensively, they're good on defense all the way around. They're a top 20 defense. But the thing that they do best is they rush the passer. They're 10th nationally in sacks. They've got 36 sacks on the year. That's about three a game. Well, unfortunately for Alabama, we are one of the best teams in the country in protecting our quarterback. We're sixth nationally. We've only given up 12 sacks on the year. So our strength in protecting the quarterback negates Alabama's defensive strength in rushing the passer. But everywhere else, Georgia has the edge. Georgia's the better football team, guys. I've been saying it all year. And look, I know the closer we get to this game, the more nervous a lot of Georgia fans out there get. And I'm not going to completely absolve myself of that. I, you know, guys know how I roll. I'm always nervous. Every game, I don't care. I was nervous going to the Tech game. That's just kind of how I operate. So yeah, am I a little nervous? Yeah, of course, always. But I also still recognize that we are clearly the better football team. I respect Bama enough to know they're fully capable of beating us, but they shouldn't beat us, and for them to beat us, it's going to require us to play less than our best game. Really, all, all Alabama has going for them in this game, the reason if you're scared, if you're nervous about this, it's just the history, right? It's the name, Alabama. It's the fact that Alabama under Nick Saban has won 16 straight times they played in the city of Atlanta, and that they're 7-0 in Mercedes-Benz Stadium, and we have not beaten them yet, in Mercedes-Benz Stadium under Nick Saban. We haven't beaten them anywhere in the entire state of Georgia under Nick Saban. So that history, it's real. It's out there. I know many of us are scarred by that history. I was at every single one of those games. Trust me. I feel it. I remember it. I have those scars. But I'm also a guy who doesn't believe history matters between the white lines on Saturday. I don't think it matters. I don't think what happened in 2012... What happened in 2017? What happened in 2018? I don't think it matters. Now, if it's you and me lining up out there, like yeah, maybe it gets in our head a little bit, right? Because we're fanatics, we're crazy people. But these players mo like they're aware of how good Alabama's been, but a lot of these guys didn't you know, like necessarily grow up Georgia fans, and they're so young, like they don't they don't know what happened in 2012. They don't even know who Chris Conley is, man. I mean, I hope they do, but they probably don't. These guys are not as mentally affected by those scars and the history as you and I are. The last thing they remember is they beat Alabama last time we played. We won a national championship, and Georgia's won 29 straight games. That's what they know. So yeah, we're the better team, guys. We are the better team. Does that mean we'll win? Of course not. Not necessarily. It means we should win, but should doesn't always mean that you will. So let's dive more into this Alabama football team. And I'm going to start with your offense. I'm going to lay out their personnel, give you my thoughts on the players. And then we're going to talk about schemes. We'll talk about how we match up with them and how I would go about trying to slow down the Alabama offense and how I would scheme against them. We got to start with Jalen Milrow. We know he's, he's the talk of the town right now, right? Like he, he's their quarterback who has gotten a lot better as the season has progressed. I got to give the guy credit; he's gotten better. He was a he was a borderline disaster early in the season. That's why he got benched after the Texas game, and that's why I wasn't high on Alabama and I wasn't taking Alabama seriously as a national championship contender coming into the season. I, I should have said in the in the preseason. I don't see Alabama as a title contender because I thought their quarterback situation was a disaster, and it was. Now, he has stabilized. Milrow has gotten more comfortable, naturally, as he's gotten more playing time, and he's become the guy. He's gotten more reps out there. He's become a better player, yes, but he's still not an elite quarterback. He is a dangerous quarterback. He's very dangerous, but he's not an elite quarterback. He's capable at any given moment of pulling off the wow play and and making an explosive play, because this guy is as explosive as it gets at the quarterback position. But on a down-to-down basis... He's not a consistently good quarterback. He doesn't do the things that quarterbacks need to do to be consistently good. He's not consistently accurate with the football. He's not consistent with his progressions. A lot of times he is a one read and take off kind of guy. Start scrambling and just improvise. I'm not saying he's incapable of going through progressions. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that he never goes through progressions. There's plenty of examples where he does at least one or two, maybe three progressions at times. But far too often he'll look at that first guy and it's not there, and he just escapes the pocket and wants to improvise. He's just inconsistent when it comes to going through those progressions, and that's his game as a passer. He's just inconsistent as a passer. That's why I can't sit here and call the guy an elite player. I can call him a dangerous player. That's the way that I look at him. He's extraordinarily dangerous. He's a thoroughbred horse out there running around, man. The dude is a dynamic athlete. He is explosive. He's big. He's physical. He does have a rocket arm. I mean, physically the guy's got the goods I'm not questioning that in the slightest bit it's just he's still a young quarterback still an experienced quarterback learning how to do the things that quarterbacks have to do he doesn't operate that offense as smoothly as a guy like I don't know for example Carson Beck does he is explosive as a a runner but he's also explosive as a passer this guy has made a living on hitting explosive plays in the passing game that's what he does really well he did against Texas A&M he did it against Auburn on Saturday you guys if you watch the Iron Bowl you saw it right there in that game when a receiver is wide open down the field if they've burned somebody if they just you know won their one-on-one matchup or if the defense has blown a coverage and the guy is wide open he will make you pay he will hit those more often than not he does that very well he throws a good deep ball I got to give the guy credit there but if you don't blow the coverages and you maintain that integrity in the back end and you actually are covering the receivers he doesn't do as great of a job of fitting balls into tight windows especially when it comes to intermediate routes like he can hit the, the intermediate and the short routes he's gotten better at that against Texas early in the year like he was bad I mean he just was not hitting guys he's gotten better at that he's calmed down he's he's certainly hitting those at a higher rate but again when you have guys covered well he doesn't put the ball into tight windows. The ball placement's not consistent. If a guy's running wide open, more often than not, he's gonna hit him. Whether that's a vertical shot down the field, a go route, a post, or if it's a comeback, if the defense is playing off coverage, if it's a dig route, if a guy's open, he does a pretty good job of putting it on him. For the most part. At least he's gotten better with that. But if you shrink that window, he is not nearly as proficient. And of course, you can say that about most quarterbacks, but it's especially true with Jalen Milrow right now. So given the talent they have at quarterback and the skill set of this guy at quarterback with Milroe, they run the football far more than they, than they throw it they're running the ball in 63% of their offensive snaps right now. And Milrow is a, a part of that. They don't do as much design QB run stuff as I think a lot of people think they do. They really don't. They, they will do some design QB run stuff, but it's mostly on the perimeter nets, that's giving us some, some issues. Obviously, we all know that, but they don't really like to run in between the tackles all that much. And they really don't do a ton of design QB run stuff. It's like we talked about all week prior to this, they don't do what Georgia Tech did. That's not what they do. Now, they can they throw some wrinkles in this week? Sure, they can throw some wrinkles, but they're not going to completely overhaul their offense in one week. And again, the guy struggles, as I said earlier in the week, he struggles with reads. Their coaches have openly said that. Broadcasters openly talk about this in their meetings with coaches, that he struggles with the reads, so they're trying to simplify the offense, and they don't give him as many reads in the run game. If you watch you guys, on their zone reads and, and things of that nature, they're not really optioning off, off people. Because if they were, he would pull the ball far more often than he does with the backside ends crashing on the ball carry it's a either a call for him to hand the ball off or pull it that's what they're doing right now Now this week can they throw a wrinkle in there and say all right Jalen we need you to read more this week is George has trouble with that sure they can but that's not what they've been doing but they still run the ball really well and he is he's definitely a threat in the run game he's more of a scrambler than he is a design QB run guy that's really more what he does but they also have a couple of really good running backs Jace McClellan, who's been around for a long time, he gets the lion's share of the carries. He's got 166 carries on the year. He's got 803 yards rushing. He's a good back, guys. He's not an elite back. He's a big, physical guy. He reminds me a lot of maybe like a Kendall Milton, maybe a slightly faster Kendall Milton, but he's not like a, a game-breaking type running back, but he's a good fit for what they want to do this year. They've kind of gone back to the old Alabama traditional ground-and-pound style offense and want to bully ball, that kind of stuff, and Jace McClellan is a good fit for that. Roy Dell Williams, though, is a guy I actually think is the more explosive running back. I think he's better. He doesn't get as many carries. He's got 94 carries on the year for 497. He actually averages about a half a yard more per per rush, 5.3 compared to 4.8 for McClellan. He is a a more explosive back. I think he's a quicker twitch kind of guy. He also runs hard. He's also a physical back. All their backs are physical. They wouldn't play for this team. Neither of those top two backs are really much of a threat in the past game. They have a combined 23 catches for 175 combined yards in the year. So they'll toss it to them here and there, but they're not a big factor. They're more of a checkdown part of the of the offense. They're not they're not designing a ton of things for those running backs to get involved in the passing game. But they do run behind a big physical offensive line. And it is a good offensive line but I also want to make sure to say I do not think it's an elite offensive line. I think that was the expectation, at least that was the narrative coming into the season. This Alabama offensive line was going to be elite and they're just going to ram the ball down people's throats and they're good. They are good. They have some some experienced players. Seth McLaughlin at center is a really good center. He's a really good football player. Uh, I, I think Tyler Booker at guard, and one of the guys that has come on really strong the back half of the season, taken over at right guard, is Jaden Roberts, number 77. This guy, he's a big physical dude there at guards. So I think the interior of their offensive line is strong. He has the strength of their offensive line. The tackles, I have some questions about. J.C. Latham at right tackles, solid. He's, he's good. Uh, he's not elite. He's not a Marius Mims-type guy. And then Caden Proctor, who is the all-everything... Offensive tackle recruit coming to high school. He's a true freshman, guys. He was committed to Iowa for a long time and then late in the cycle, maybe on sign day, but late in the cycle, he flips and he goes to Alabama. And he's been a day one starter for them. Early in the year, guys, Proctor was a massive liability on the edge. They have given up a ton of sacks this season. In fact, if you look at their numbers offensively, Alabama has given up 39 sacks this season, guys. Compare that to Georgia. We've been up 12. They've been up more than three times as many sacks as we have on the year. We're six nationally. They are 115 nationally. And... All the guys on their offensive line have given him sacks at times, but early in the year, it was Proctor, man. Like, he was the big issue. He's a big dude. He's playing like 350, 360 right now, and he, was, he wasn't he was that big in high school. He bulked up and got bigger once he got to college, once he got to Alabama. And you can tell he just wasn't familiar with how to play with that size, and he was slow defending speedy edge rushers. He was. Now, he's gotten better. He has stabilized his performance, but he's still not an elite pass protecting tackle right now he's a big fizzle guy in the run game and yeah I mean with that size he can plow you over in the run game for sure but in pass pro especially against speed rushers guys with twitch like oh I don't know uh I don't know we have this guy named Jalen Walker right heard of him yeah that kind of guy or I don't know maybe a true freshman like Damon Wilson against guys like that he struggles man I'm telling you he still struggles so speaking of pass pro and the pass game at large, let's go to the receivers here. So Jermaine Burton, we all know him well, spent his first two college years here in Athens, won a national championship with us, and then went to Alabama, and it hasn't been exactly smooth sailing for him. It hasn't been what I'm sure he probably expected. He thought he was probably going to go over there and put up numbers like Jalen Waddell and Devontae Smith were doing. That's probably what he thought he was going to do. It hasn't worked out. Last year, obviously, um, he wasn't that guy. Everyone was saying coming to the preseason that he was going to be that guy for them. He was the next great Bama receiver, and I was sitting there coming in 2022 Screaming to everyone that would listen, like, no, he's not that guy. Everyone want to just call me a, a hater and say it was sour grapes. I was like, no, I mean, I wish the guy well enough as long as he's not playing Georgia, but. He's just not that guy. He's a good player. He's just not an elite receiver. Now he has he has performed much better this year. He, he's done. He's a good receiver, guys. He is a really good receiver. I just don't think that he was the, a Devontae Smith level type guy. I didn't think he was a a you know, a Jamison Williams level guy. He wasn't that kind of guy. But he has been their top receiver this year. He's got 33 receptions, 749 yards receiving on the year. Now he doesn't lead the team in catches. That's Isaiah Bond, an old Buford product. Watch him play up here at Clark Central a couple years back. Good football player. Smaller guy. He's got 39 catches on the year, so he leads them in receptions. But Burton is the leader in terms of receiving yards. He also leads them in yards per catch. He's their big play threat right now. He's been that guy all year, 22.7 yards per attempt. When they're wanting to take those shots down the field, more often than not, it is to Jermaine Burton. Also leads them in receiving touchdowns with seven on the year. Bond is their second leading receiver, 542, but only 13.9 yards per catch, four touchdowns on the year. Amari Nyblack is an interesting guy that they have. He plays, ostensibly plays tight end, but he's not really a tight end. If you've seen the guy, he looks like, I mean, he's listed at like 235, 240. That guy looks like he weighs about 215 pounds. I have a really hard time believing that dude's 233 pounds. If you've seen a guy on the field, number 84 for Alabama, you know what I'm talking about. He looks like an extra receiver out there, and they use him in that in that role. He doesn't really play any inline tight end. They have a couple other guys that they will use in that role. They'll use a guy named C.J. Dupree, uh, a guy named Kendrick Law, who we we'll are get to in a minute, is also playing more of an H-back kind of role for them. So they, they use different guys. Robbie Alts is another guy they use in that kind of like inline tight end role because they'll, they'll use... 12 personnel, they will. And Nye Black might be one of those quote unquote tight ends on the field, but he's not playing in line, man. He might do a little H back stuff, and more often than not, he's split out there, he's flexed out in the slot doing those kind of things. So he kind of operates more as a receiver because he kind of looks like that. And then you have a couple other guys that have been more role players to them, Kobe Prentice and League Benson. They've got sixteen and thirteen catches respectively on the year. They're capable players, and you've got to you've got to certainly respect them when they're on the field. But it's really the top two guys are Burton and Bond. Those are the guys that they, they want to get the football to. And then, you know. Nye Black as well, 18 catches, 304 yards in the year, four touchdowns. He's kind of that third guy in the pass game. But let's get back to Kendrick Law. This guy is a fascinating player for me. I am really intrigued by what this guy brings to the table. Law is kind of the opposite of Nye Black. He's listed as a receiver, but he doesn't really just truly play receiver. He'll go out there and and, and flex out and play receiver at times, but they kind of use him as like their version of Dylan Bell. That'd be the best way I would describe him to a Georgia fan. He's kind of like their jack of all trades, like Dylan Bell is for us. He doesn't really line up much at running back, although they will at times. They'll do some two-back stuff We they have an actual running back, and then they might put a receiver back there like Kendrick Law, but they use him a lot in an H-back role. He's not a huge dude, but he's he's thick. He's physical. He's 5'11", 200 pounds. Like he's, a guy, he, he's listed at 200, but he looks closer like 215-ish to me. I mean, he looks thicker to me than Night Black. Now, he's not as tall as Night Black, so there's that. But he's a thicker, more physical guy, and they will actually use him to block. So when he's in the game, it's not... You can't just say, oh, he's in there to, to carry the football or to, to catch the football. Maybe, but not necessarily. He'll also block. They'll keep you guessing there. But they'll use him on jet sweeps, uh, whether that's from the slot position, whether that's from the H-back position. They actually had a play against Auburn. You guys might have saw this play, where they were lined up on... It was fourth. And, I think it was like the third... It was the fourth and inches play, I think it was third and twenty and late in the first half and uh Milro took off and and scrambled for nineteen yards and they thought he got a first down, but he didn't quite get the first down. So it was like fourth and inches. And they hurried up to the line and they looked like they were going to do like the tush push. But instead of doing that, they Turn around and hand the ball to Kendrick Law, who was playing the H-back, and kind of just comes behind the line of scrimmage and takes the ball. Now, it would have been an easy first down. It would have been a huge play for them. But either Auburn or one of the two teams called a timeout right before the play was actually snapped, and so it didn't count. But they'll do those kind of things with him, and he is a guy that I. I feel confident that they are going to try to get the ball to on the perimeter in the run game, the in the screen game against us because of the issues that we have had defending the edges all year. I think he is a guy they want to get on the perimeter. He is a playmaker for them, and they can find ways to get him the football in different ways because he can line up in different spots. He is kind of a jack-of-all-trades, much like Dylan Bell has been for us. He didn't play much early in the year. I mean, the first time he actually played a game was against Ole Miss, but... The back half of the season, last month or so, he's become much more of a feature part of what they do. And he's still, I wouldn't say I'm a feature part, but he's been more a part of what they do offensively. He's been incorporated more to the offense. Tennessee, he had a couple of catches for 38 yards. Uh, against Auburn, he had three catches. Um, Kentucky had a catch. LSU had a couple catches. So he still has only has 13 catches for 134 yards in the year. But I'm just telling you guys, like he, he's a playmaker. He's a guy that has the ability to make big-time plays for them. He hasn't done it a ton for them, but... I just have a feeling they're going to try to get this guy more involved in what they do in this game and get him on the perimeter with his ability to be a, a versatile player for them on the offensive side of the ball. So that's the personnel, and we've kind of gotten to this scheme here a little bit. What do I expect Alabama to do? Well, they're going to run the football. That's what they do. They're going to run the football, and they're going to try to work vertical play action shots down the field off that. That's that's really what their offense is. It is an explosive offense. and Guys, they are very explosive. They are 12th nationally in plays of 20 or more yards. We've got 71 of those. They're 13th nationally in plays of 30 or more yards. They've got 35 of those suckers. And then they're 6th nationally and plays of 40 or more yards. they got 21 of those guys. So they are an explosive offense. Unfortunately for Alabama, our defense has been one of the best defenses in the country in terms of limiting explosive plays by opposing offenses. We have only given up 35 plays of 20 or more yards, which is ninth nationally. We're sixth nationally in plays of 30 or more allowed. We're seventh nationally in plays of 40 or more allowed. So this is almost one of those strength versus strength kind of things again. And that is absolutely going to be a key for us, guys, because Alabama, as explosive as they are on offense, hitting those big plays, they kind of rely on those. They're not a very efficient offense. I mean, relative to the rest of the country, sure. But if you're looking at the the top group of teams that are vying for a possible playoff spot this season, Alabama, from an efficiency standpoint, offensively, they're not really up there. They're in the in the FEI ratings, which is again an, an opponent adjusted efficiency rating. They're 22nd nationally in FEI in offensive efficiency. It's not terrible, but it's not elite either. So what does that tell me? That tells me this Alabama team relies on those explosive plays and if you can limit those explosive plays and force them to consistently have to go the length of the field bit by bit play by play and put together 10 11 play drives of that nature they're not going to be able to do that consistently enough to score enough points to beat Georgia chances are they will make a mistake somewhere along the way whether that's Milro missing an open guy whether he's making a poor read and turn the football over whether that's committing a penalty that kills a drive, because they are a heavily penalized football team. They're 69th nationally. They average six penalties a game for 50 yards a game. Those aren't traditional Nick Saban discipline numbers, right? So they just don't string together those kind of drives on a consistent enough basis, in my opinion, to be able to beat us. Because we can do that, even against good defense, which we'll get to Bama's defense in a minute. They are very good defensively, but we're just better at doing that. If it comes down, if both teams limit explosive plays, And it comes down to who can string together enough drives to win this football game absolutely I trust the Georgia offense far more than I trust the Bama offense so that's going to be a key for us now the question becomes a much more important question becomes how do you do that so that's important question number one for our defense and I think the second most important question for our defense is the one that's been on everybody's mind this week as they've been asking me all week long and and it's been talked about ad nauseum all week long how do you slow down Jalen Milrow how do you keep this guy from being the game breaker that he has the potential to be so two things. I think they're, they're somewhat interrelated. And let's, let's go with Milrow here, okay? Let's start with that. And I touched on this a little bit with our mailbag episode, but let's go into more detail here. So Jalen Milrow is a guy, again, as I mentioned, is a dynamic athlete. He's more of a scrambler than he is a design QB run guy, but with his legs... He can absolutely gut you. He can kill you, man. He can rip off explosive plays. You saw that last week against Auburn. You've seen it all year. He's always been able to do that. That's the strength of his game. He has improved as a passer as the season has gone on. He's become much more proficient. But that's still not what he does best. So if you are a defensive coordinator, I say this all the time, most weeks when we do these shows. So if you're new to the show, you probably hear me say this for the first time. If you've been around for a while, you hear me say it for the 5,000th time probably. But as a defensive coordinator, when you're putting together a game plan, What you are trying to do is first determine what does this opponent do best and then what do they not do well and then you want to design your game plan in a way that it forces them to beat you doing what they don't do well. You simply cannot allow them to beat you doing what they want to do, playing their football game. You got to make them play quote unquote as I often say left-handed, make them play left-handed. So what does that mean for Alabama? Making Alabama play left-handed means forcing Jalen Milroe to be a pocket passer and to beat you from the pocket, throwing the football. All right, cool. That's not rocket science. Yeah, like that's pretty obvious, Tyler, right? Yeah, we need to do that. Well, the next question then becomes, how do you do that? I also think that's fairly straightforward. I don't really think that's rocket science. I mean, most defensive coordinators worth anything at the college level understand how to approach a quarterback with a set of Jalen Milrow, a guy that's an athlete like that, you simply cannot rush the passer with reckless abandon. You cannot freestyle. You have to have a controlled, disciplined pass rush, what we would call a mush rush. You have to squeeze the pocket. You have to rush the passer. That's the thing with Milrow. This is what makes it, I guess, somewhat more complicated because it's kind of a catch-22. If you don't get after the guy and you allow him to sit back there and dance in the pocket, he's going to have all day long, even for a guy who doesn't read defenses exceptionally well right now at this stage in his development it doesn't go through progressions at a rapid rate or as quickly as he needs to if you give him all day because you're scared to rush him because you're scared that he's going to take off and and he's going to exploit the rushing lanes you create if you rush too far up field and you get kind of undisciplined well you allow him to sit back there and, and he is capable if he can sit back there to kind of pick you apart and, and find open guys and really what his receivers do is they just do a good job of playing backyard football if he's got all day back there if the initial route's not open they'll just start running around and Play backyard football. And the one thing about Midrow, if you watch a guy play quarterback, when he drops, he kind of just like stays in that spot when he's in the pocket. And when he saves the pocket, all bets are off, right? But when he's in the pocket, he doesn't move well within the pocket, right? He doesn't slide much. He doesn't kind of create those throwing lanes for himself. He kind of just like sits and kind of dances there and is on the tips of his toes in the pocket. So you kind of know where he's going to be and that to me when you know where the guy is going to be when he's in the pocket it screams come after him if you know where he's going to be they don't really roll him much they don't do a ton of like boot action stuff which you think they would do with a guy of of that kind of athleticism and that skill set when he's in the pocket he kind of stays in that spot, so he's, you kind of know where he's going to be, so you're really tempted to come after him. Like, I kind of think you have to, because you saw what he did, like when Aller only rushed two guys, well, that was a crazy play, fourth and 31, right? When he only rushed two guys, and a couple other plays in that game where they did the same thing, where they didn't really come after him, and he's just kind of sitting back there, man, and Kirby said this as well in, in Monday's press conference. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I trust Kirby on this because it kind of matches what I see with my eyes. According to Kirby, Alabama leads the country in time for the quarterback to throw. Now, maybe that's just something he's throwing out there because he saw it too. Maybe he doesn't have the numbers himself. But if you watch it, you know what I mean people don't come after him, or at least they haven't as much lately because they're approaching it the way that I said most teams know how to approach it. They're using that mush rush, a controlled, disciplined pass rush, and they're not rushing up field because they don't want to create those rush lanes that he can, can then exploit. Because if somebody's not open and you do rush too far up the field, that's when he'll escape the pocket and he starts improvising. I think he's at his best when he's outside the pocket where he has that run pass option, and it's, which is not an RPO. It's not a traditional RPO, but still, run pass option. And he uh, when he gets out on the edges like that and can extend the plays improvising, their their receivers do an extraordinarily good job at the scramble drill, playing backyard football, just getting open. They see him escape the pocket, they kind of abandon their routes and they just try to get open. And he does a good job keeping his eyes down the field when he's doing that. And he he finds those guys. And that's how they hit a lot of their explosive plays. They really hit their explosive plays in two scenarios off broken plays, broken coverages, or when he escapes the pocket and they're just playing the scramble drill, backyard football, and they find guys. I think you have to make him sit in the pocket, but you also have to find a way to pressure him when he's sitting in the pocket. And that's what makes it more complicated. How do you do that? Because those seem to be somewhat at odds, right? Because you want to you want to keep him in the pocket with, with discipline, but you also want to rush the passer and rush the passer and kind of getting after him. Sometimes you'd be a little undisciplined to do that, right? Like you can't just say, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rush slowly and discipline here. I want to. Sometimes you want to use that speed rush and, and get up the field a little bit so then you can you can bend the edge and get after the quarterback. But if you do that, oftentimes he takes off. So it's kind of a catch-22. How do you approach that? It's the same thing with stunting with your interior defense lineman or any of your defense lineman. If you stunt too much, that might cr- create those running lanes that he can take off and and, and, and cut you into pieces with, with his legs. So one of the ways that I would go about that is I would use some overload blitzes off the edge. And the reason I would do that is because if you have multiple guys coming from the same angle off the same edge... Well, one of those guys can play with more discipline and more like rush lane integrity where the other guy would then be freed up more to be a little more freewheeling, right? And and kind of freestyling out there to do whatever he needs to do to get after the quarterback. I really do like overload blitzes against this Alabama team, specifically against Caden Proctor. That is the guy at left tackle that I would target, and I would use our twitchy guys over there, man. I would line up Jalen Walker, and I would line up Damon Wilson on the same side. I have both those suckers coming off the edge, off the same edge, and I'd be okay if like if it's Michael Williams, right? Maybe you want to use one of your five techs to be that guy that that uses more structural integrity against the uh, in his pass rush, more discipline, and you use one of the twitchy guys, whether it's Walker or or Wilson or whoever you might want to use out there maybe a smile, Munden, whoever, maybe use them in that role of kind of, okay, I'm going to turn you loose, let you get after the quarterback. But again, I really like the overload blitzes, where that's on the edges, where that's overload blitzes from the interior. I think that is the way to approach it. That allows you to keep that, that discipline and that integrity kind of keeping him in the pocket, but also allows another guy to come free and be a little bit more unleashed when it comes to rushing the passer. Now, from a coverage standpoint, it's also tough. Like, It's really tough to play a lot of man coverage against a quarterback with the skill set of Jalen Milrow. It it just is, because when you play man coverage, what are you going to do when the receiver runs around? You turn your back to the quarterback, right? You're chasing the receiver, and when that happens, the quarterback sees numbers. When he sees your back, he's taking off, man. He's running because the the lanes are there. There's no one sitting there watching him, and what do you have to do in those cases? Well, you got to spy him, right? So if you play man coverage, you probably need to spy the guy, but if you spy the guy, it means you're taking somebody out of coverage. Or you're taking a, a blitzer out of the pass rush. So that comes with its with its own issues as well. But I think you have to spy him. I mean that's pretty clear at this point. If if you're playing man coverage. Which we're gonna do some. Now I I, I don't know if I would do if I play a lot of man coverage. Like the money downs and those third down situations, again, they're really explosive. And they're really explosive on third downs. Like they they hit a lot of their explosive plays on third downs. Kind of uncanny. The dude is averaging 12.7 yards per attempt on third down this year. He's got 65% completion percentage and seven touchdowns on third down. So they are dangerous even on third and long situations. He can be really explosive. So you, you got to be careful there at times. But man coverage is a big part of what we do. Now we've run a lot more zone this year than we have in years past, whether it's some cover two stuff, whether it's even some cover three stuff at times. We're in a lot of quarters, and in some ways, quarters has kind of like seemingly become more or less our base coverage, it seems like, this year. But we still do like to play some aggressive in-your-face man coverage stuff. And I think we can get away with that against Bama's receivers. Burton is a really good receiver, but I feel comfortable. If we got Kamari Laster on him, I feel comfortable with that matchup more often than not. I think Dalen Everett's gotten a raw deal this year. I think this guy's played much better than people want to give him credit for. Has he got beat at times? Sure, of course, but not as consistently as people want to make it out to be. The dude's essentially given up like one catch for about 10 yards a game this year in man coverage. He's not Kamari Laster, but he's not a slouch either. So I'm fine with play some man coverage. We just got to have a spy that we feel good there. I think we need to switch up who that spy is. I think we need to switch up the coverages, like you do every game, but especially against a guy like Milroy You want to keep this guy guessing, because I still don't think he processes at as fast of a rate as he needs to, and that could give us the, the chance that we need to get back there and and get him on the ground. And that's the thing with their sack numbers. Is a lot of that on the offensive line? Yes, of course. But a lot of that's on the quarterback as well because, again, he does not go through his progressions and his reads, doesn't process as quickly as you would like your quarterback to do because he's just young, he's inexperienced, has a done a lot, he's gotten better at it, but he still doesn't do it especially well. And you can help manufacture some issues with in that regard, by switching up your coverages and showing him some things that maybe he hasn't seen, keep the guy guessing. Throw some, some 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 three match at the guy. So throw some old school three match stuff. Throw some man under. Throw some some two under. Throw some cover three. Throw some quarter stuff at him. Throw some palms coverage. That two trap stuff. I actually like to see a fair amount of palms coverage. I think this is a guy that we can bait into some mistakes. And it's a pretty simple coverage. If you're not familiar with palms, sometimes it's called two read. Sometimes sometimes it's called uh two trap. But really all it is, is it looks like man coverage on the outside. You got a cornerback and you, get, and you get the safety. You got two receivers out there. It's all based on the number two receiver, that inside receiver, the slot receiver. If that guy releases inside or vertical, then the the safety, or maybe it's the star defender, whoever it is, and how you structure your defense, they got that guy in man coverage. And the cornerback has the number one receiver in man coverage. If, however, the number two receiver releases outside, then the cornerback comes off number one and he takes that number two receiver who's breaking outside and a lot of times quarterback's not going to see that because he thinks it's man coverage and then they got that cornerback kind of trapping him sitting there just kind of baiting him and then he breaks the ball and you got yourself an interception or a pass deflection I think we can do those kind of things use some robber coverages against him in the middle of the field but regardless you got to switch things up and if you run man coverage be very very careful I'm not saying to stay away from it you you have to do it at, so, at some point you got to do it a little bit to keep him honest but you got to also understand you got to account for his legs which of course our coaches know but all right, guys, we went long there on the Alabama offense and how we match up there and, and, and what we need to do from a schematic standpoint to try to slow them down. Obviously, is keep Jalen Milrow in that pocket, and I gave you guys some of my thoughts on how to do that. So we're going to get to the Alabama defense, Georgia offense here momentarily. But first, let me remind you guys once again about our great friends at Alumni Hall. Holidays are here, man. Whether you are ready for them or not, they are here. Christmas music is, music is blaring, at least it is in my house. I am already tired of it. Yes, I'm the Grinch. That's okay. But Alumni Hall is going to put a smile on everybody's face because they have all the best Christmas gifts for every Georgia fan in your life waiting on you to pick up. You can stop by in-store inside the Epps Shopping Center here in the Classic City or online at alumnihall.com. It's a great online shopping experience. They have all the best brands, all the styles, great men's selection, women's selections, children's selections, home and office, car stuff, whatever you're looking for. A ton of stocking stuffers. Again, I saw that earlier this week. Really cool stocking stuffer ideas. For uh, for your family, so check them out today, guys. Because Alumni Hall is where the Bulldogs shop. All right, let's flip this over and take a look at the Alabama defense. Now, this unit is a very good unit. I still don't know if I would go as far as calling them like elite, elite. I think they are one of the best defenses in the country. Statistically, the numbers tell you they are essentially a top 20 caliber defense, which is about right. Georgia's a top 10 caliber defense, Bama top 20. They are 17th nationally in total defense, 312 yards a game, 19th in yards per play, 14th in scoring, you have 18 points per game. They are 10th in uh, defensive FEI and efficiency. They're 15th in passing defense, 35th in rushing defense, so not as good as they have been in the years past, a lot like us. Uh, They are really good at getting after the quarterback. They're 10th nationally in sacks, as we talked about. They give up a lot of explosive plays. They're 50th nationally, giving up 49 plays of 20 or more yards. They're good on third down. They're 26th nationally, giving up uh, conversions on 33.9% of opponent third downs. They're also really good in the red zone. They're 26th nationally in opponent red zone touchdown percentage, giving up touchdowns on 51.5% of opponent red zone possession. So they're good. They are good. They are very talented. Most... Disruptive player on their defense is, without a doubt, Dallas Turner. They have two really good pass rushers. It's Dallas Turner and Chris Braswell. They both have eight sacks apiece, both good pass rushers. Turner is, in my opinion, more explosive pass rusher. I think he's a twitchier guy. He's a little bit smaller, so he's not as good against the run. It's a lot like, you know, when we played uh, Harold Perkins last year, when we played uh, James Pierce, Jr. against Tennessee. He's a guy that I just don't think is a particularly good run defender. Now, he's bigger than like Pierce is. He's bigger than Perkins was a year ago. He's, he's about 250. He's like 6'4", 250. So he's not like he's a super small guy, but he, he's not a, a really stout guy. He's not a particularly strong physical guy and taking on on pullers, taking on guards, tackles pulling in his face, he doesn't do a great job closing on those guys, he can completely wash down, he struggles to shed blocks, he'll still get moved, he's gotten better this year, he has, he's gotten stronger, he's gotten a little bit bigger, so he has improved in that regard, last year he was a liability in the run game, I and mean, I still think he's somewhat of a liability in the run game, not as much as he was last, uh, was last year, but what do you want to do with a guy like that? You, you'd rather run the ball at him. And that also neutralizes his pass rush because it keeps him a step slow rushing the passer if you're running at him all the time. So that's always how I approach attacking guys like that, those speed rushers off the edge. And Turner is a guy historically who has shown that he has some issues defending the run in his face. Now, Braswell's a different story. He is a bigger dude. At least he looks bigger on the field. He's listed like 255, so just a little bit heavier. Then Dallas Turner, he's a little shorter, so he's more stout, but he just looks bigger and he is a stronger run defender. He's stronger at the point of attack than Dallas Turner is, but he's still not, like stopping the run is still not what he does best. Both these guys, what they do best, their greatest strength is rushing the pass. And they got two of them on either edge, which is exactly why they are 10th nationally in sacks this year, 36 on the season, three a game. It's those two guys, they together have combined for 16 sacks on the year. The other guy that I really like when I turn on the tape is number 92, Justin Igboibe. We recruited this guy pretty heavily. I thought we were going to get him for a little while. He's a five-tech guy, a lot like Michael Williams. He's got six sacks in the year, ten and a half tackles for loss. He's a really good athletic five-tech. He's good against the run. He can give you some strong pass rush from that five-tech position, which in the Georgia-Alabama-style defense, that's not typically a glamour pass rush position, but he gives them more from that position than I think they've had in a while. So yet another reason why they are so good rushing the passer. Now against the run this year, they are not a vintage Bama rush defense. Just like we're not a vintage Georgia rush defense, we talked about that all year, you can say the exact same thing about Alabama. And it's largely for the same reasons that we aren't a vintage Georgia rush defense this year. They just simply aren't special on the interior of their defensive line. They're not, guys. They don't have the dudes they had in years past. There's no Quinn Williams out there, right? There's no Marcel Darius out there. They don't have guys like that. They have good players. Tim Smith's played a lot of football for them. He's a really good football player. Jaheem Otis is a big fizzle guy, a good football player on the interior of their defensive line. A lot like Nazir Stackhouse is a good player for us on the interior of our line. Zion Lowe, Warren Brinson, all good players, but who's the game changer there? We don't really have the overall game changer right now on our defensive line, neither does Alabama. They don't have that guy that consistently commands double teams that frees up the other guys on the defensive line and frees up their inside linebacker. And I think this is a defensive front that our offensive line can have success against. Their edge rushers do give me some cause for concern because they're really good. But again, we've been so good. Having Marius Mins back is huge in this game. Now, if Truss is out there having to play right tackle... I I would have some concerns. I would love to not see Xavier Truss at tackle at all in this game because these guys, especially Dallas Turner, are exactly the kind of edge rushers, speed rushers that... Xavier Truss struggles tremendously with. Let's keep him in that guard rotation. He might have to start at guard. We'll see what Tate Rattledge's status is and what his health is. I think Tate's got a shot to go in this game. We'll see as we get closer to the game. I don't know there, but I don't feel very confident with Xavier Truss out at left or right tackle in this game. It's just not something I want to see because if he's out there, you know the, the Alabama defensive coaches are going to see that, and they are going to try to get those matchups on him, and he's going to struggle in those situations. But with Mims out there, and, and Ernest Green on the other side has gotten better. Obviously, to a lesser degree, I don't feel as comfortable and confident with him out there. I'm sure they'll try to scheme some matchups, some one-on-one matchups against him, and that is something to watch. That is that is um, a, a scary thought at times for me, but I'm very confident in Amarius. Dude's the first round draft pick, and he's going to show that. He played maybe his best game ever against Tech last week. That guy was off the charts good. I think in the run game, we can get movement on this defensive front. I think that we can, I know that we can move Braswell. I know that we can certainly move Turner. I think we can move the interior guys. I I think they're good. I just don't think that they're they're elite. I'm not going to say that we're going to dominate them. They're they're too good to say we're going to dominate them, but I don't think they're going to be able to dominate us. I think that we're going to have a fair amount of success running the football, and we're going to need to. And another reason why I believe that we can have some success running the football is their inside linebacker group. It's not, it's not a good group, guys. They're, 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 okay. I mean, they're not, I'm not going to sit here and say they're terrible, but they do not impress me. They have not impressed me at all from like week one to now. I have not been impressed by any of those guys at any point this season, especially former Georgia Bulldog Tresman Marshall. I thought it was just crazy when he transferred to Alabama I'm like why are you taking this guy especially if he's gonna like contend for a starting spot this guy would not have been in our rotation this year I mean maybe he would now with with pop out but if pop was healthy and you got CJ there he's not going to be in the rotation and he started a number of games for Alabama this year he's not starting now he's still in the rotation he's still playing for them he's not starting now because they've seen exactly what I said all offseason like If that's the dude that you're going to rely on to be a starter for you, you in trouble, Alabama. This is a guy that wasn't going to play at Georgia, and you're taking him to maybe be a starter to contend for that. That's not a good look. And that's kind of what he was doing early in the year, but he's not now. Uh, The top two guys are Jihad Campbell and Deontay Lawson. Lawson is the best of that trio. In my opinion, I think he's the most athletic. Now, technically, Jihad Campbell is is the leading guy in tackles. Now, Caleb Downs, the freshman from Mill Creek who plays safety for them who we wanted and did not get Gwinnett County strikes again he's leading the team in tackles got 95 from that safety position which that tells you something too right but Jah Campbell's second with 61 Deontay Lawson is uh fourth with 57 but Lawson missed a couple games he's only played nine games this year Campbell's played 11 so throw the overall tackles out it's not apples to apples my opinion, Deontay Lawson is the better inside linebacker. But again, I don't believe in really any of those guys. I mean, guys, with Tresman Marshall on the field last week, he played some of the first half against against Auburn. He might have been their first touchdown drive. And the dude was just, I mean, he was getting, he was getting moved. He couldn't get off blockers. He looked lost out there. And then I don't know if he played after that, to be honest with you. I was like, is Tresman out there? Like, what happened to this guy? And he's just like, we're not playing him anymore. He's become a liability when he's out there. He is. He's just not a good enough player to play at that level for that type of team and as I mentioned earlier a, a big part of why these linebackers have struggled because they they have athleticism at least Lawson and Campbell do but a big reason why they struggled is they don't have that interior presence that dominant interior presence that's able to, to command double teams e-up space and keep blockers off them and all three of those guys have a really hard time shedding and disengaging from blockers when you get up to the second level on them you've got them beat because they are not going to get off those blocks they don't use their hands well. They're almost helpless. They're almost helpless when the offensive line can get up to the second level. And again, that's a big part of why they have given up almost 130 yards rushing a game this year. Now, I know Auburn was able to put up almost 250 on the ground against them last week. Now, we're not going to be able to attack them the way that Auburn did. A lot like Alabama is not going to be able to attack us the way that Georgia Tech did offensively because we don't run our offense the way that Auburn does. We don't have a mobile quarterback. We don't have a dual threat guy. So we can't really do the option S stuff that Auburn was doing to them and Auburn did to us. We just can't attack them that way. But we can still use some of those principles in terms of misdirection that Auburn did to to really hurt this Alabama defense and be able to run the football. And regardless, even if we don't have that dual threat quarterback, which does make it more of a challenge for us, we're gonna have to find some ways to to overcome that. And what we usually do, guys, since we don't have a, a dual threat guy at quarterback, we use our tight ends we use our h we use our receivers and we run a lot of rpos we'll run what we call a toothpick we're running that it's basically what what everyone else would call split zone bluff and that can that can occupy that backside defensive end or can occupy the the star defender we'll use floss which is instead of going split zone across the formation you have the h-back and he just kind of goes in the into the flat from his side so if he's if he is positioned to the boundary, then he'll go into the flat of the boundary. If he position of the field, he'll go into the flat to the field, and we'll occupy maybe the front side defender or whoever. Maybe it might be backside depending on where the run goes. We'll occupy them that way. Which you usually do that with a quarterback who's mobile, right? With a, with a quarterback run threat, we don't have that, so we have to do it in different ways. So we use our h backs, use our tight ends, use our receivers, use our running backs at times. And I think you're going to see us use that liberally in this game. We use it a lot, I and mean, it's it's a regular part of our offense. I think you're going to see a lot of that, that split zone bluff stuff, the the, the floss play because that's a way to slow down the pass rush of Dallas Turner and Chris Braswell, because in certain coverages and certain looks, depending on what they're playing, they might have responsibility in coverage for that linebacker, for that H-back, and if they're releasing to run a route, they've got to go with them, so you can take them out of the, the, the pass rush game by doing that. So I think that's going to be a big part of our game plan. It would be a big part of my game plan I'm Mike Bobo. And we also happen to have this guy named Brock Bowers. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he poses more of a threat from the tight end position than anyone in college football. So if he's doing those things, they have to pay attention to that. We'll also use Ladd McConkey in that role. And if Ladd's doing that, you got to pay attention to Ladd, right? But yeah, I think that's something that we can use to accomplish two wins. We can use that to help us run the football and remove defenders from the box, give us a numbers advantage. And we can also, Use that to slow down their pass rush. And then the final part of the Alabama defense to talk about, let's talk about their secondary. They have two really good cornerbacks. Obviously, Kool Aid McKinstry is their top guy. He's one of the best cornerbacks in the country. I do think he's really, really talented. I think he's a really good player. I don't think he's as good as Kamari last year. I would would say Kamari, but they're not going to be playing against each other. You know, it's not how that works. He's a good player, man. He's probably going to be a first round draft pick. He's not unbeatable. I've seen this guy. At various points this year, get beat on routes. He's not so good that you just shy away from his side of the field. He's not that kind of guy. I don't know if I really believe in shutdown corners anymore, anyway, as I often say. And then Terry on Arnold on the other side, he's another guy that we recruited heavily. A lot of these guys on Alabama's roster, a lot of guys on our roster. Both sides recruited, and some some you got, some you didn't get. Arnold's one that we did not get. And he went to Alabama, and he's been a really good player for them, but he is a guy that he'll give up some explosive plays. I think he's not on the level of Kamari year He's not on the level of Kalay McKinstry. But he, again, it's kind of like Dalen Everett. He's not, he's not a scrub either. He's a really good football player. And then at safety, a lot like last year, I think these are guys that you can absolutely attack in coverage. And they will run a lot of man coverage, guys. They'll put their corners on islands. That's what Sabans like to do traditionally. They don't do it as much as they used to, but they will still play a lot of press man coverage, get up in your face. But there are two starting safeties, Caleb Downs and Jalen Key. Both are good, talented players. Uh, Jalen Key's a, a grad transfer, so he's played a lot of football. Caleb Downs, true freshman, milk Greek, mentioned him earlier. Both of those guys, especially Downs, are elite run defenders, a lot like the guys that Alabama has had at safety the past couple years, a lot like DeMarco Helm's, a lot like Jordan Battle. I mean, Helm's from the safety position, led Alabama in tackles last year. Dude had 108 tackles from the safety position. Him and Jordan Battle were really good run defenders but they were liabilities in one-on-one coverage. And they tried to not allow them to be in one-on-one coverage any more than they had to be. But there are ways that offenses can go about, depending on what coverage you're running, really no matter what coverage you're running, you can get the matchups you want on these guys. And if you can scheme it up to get them matched up one-on-one with one of your better receivers, whether it's Brock Bowers at tight end, whether it's Lab McConkie out of the slot, whether it's Dominic Love out of the slot, whoever it might be, if you can scheme that one-on-one, you are going to win the vast majority of those battles. And that is going to be a major part of what Mike Bobo needs to do in this game. It's going to be incumbent upon him to find ways to scheme up matchups with Bowers specifically, Ladd specifically, on those safeties those safeties, and also their inside linebackers. We've got to find a way to get those matchups because we are going to win those matchup, guys. We are going to create explosive plays against this Alabama defense if we can scheme up those matchups. A big part of doing that... And being able to find those matchups is running the football, right? That's why I go back to, right? You've got to find a way to run the football on this team. Because if we do that, those safeties are going to creep in. It's going to affect what coverages Alabama is running on the back end. It's going to create more one-on-one opportunities for Brock Bowers, for Ladd McConkey, for Dylan Bell, for Dominic Lovett. And when we can get those matchups, I'm telling you, we are going to exploit them against those safeties and against those linebackers if we can scheme it up, if we can run the football well enough to make it happen. And I'm not saying we got to do what Auburn did in the last so week and go for roughly 250. If we can run the ball for between 130 to 150 yards, that's good enough against this Alabama defense. And given how Kendall Milton is running the football right now, how dejon Edwards has been running the football all year long, both of these guys have had career years. Kendall Milton has had a career month. I like our chances to hit those markers. That's it guys, we need to hit 130 to 150. Somewhere around there, anything past that, it's gravy. If we can run for like 200 plus, I mean, I don't see how we lose the game if we hit those numbers. I don't expect that, but I think we can hit 130, 150. I mean, Bama's get up 130 yards a game on the ground. We're running the football better than we have at any point this year right now. Those backs are running it. They're running better than they have at any point this year. Our line is blocking better than it has at any point this year. If, especially if Tate comes back, we're healthy on the offensive line and more experienced in the offensive line than we have been at any point this year. So I do think we'll be able to scheme up the matchups, whether it's our ability to run or it's Mike Bobo just getting into his bag. I think we'll be able to, and we need to, because that's how we're going to create explosive plays against this Alabama defense. All right, guys, I know this has gone a little long today. We're sitting here at one hour, eight minutes right now. But Before I leave you today, I want to give you guys a couple keys to this game, kind of wrap this thing up. And I've talked about some of these keys. Let's just summarize it here real quick. First off, In a game of this magnitude against two really talented football teams, two really good football teams, it's always the little things that can be the decisive factor, right? It's turnovers, a turnover here or there, a missed field goal here or there, special teams, a penalty at a very inopportune time, all of those things. When I say that if we don't play our A game, Alabama can beat us, that's what I'm talking about. Us not playing our A game means that we commit some uncharacteristic turnovers. We have some dumb penalties. We play poorly on special teams. We miss some some blocks. We blow some assignments in the back end and give up explosive plays. Those are things that we cannot do. That's a key in this game. Whoever wins the turnover battle will probably win this football game. I think the margins are close enough that that could be a decisive factor. Special teams, I think both teams are good on special teams. Both teams use their starters all over their special teams. I mean, they're littered everywhere. Both teams put a lot of emphasis on that. They have a really good kicker. Rykard is an awesome kicker. There's a point this year, guys, where he hadn't missed a kick at all. He's missed three now this year. He missed one against Auburn, but he doesn't miss often, guys. He's only missed three this year. He's the guy that's kind of solved the kicking issues for Bam. Remember Bam used to have all those kicking issues for years? It was kind of like their one fatal flaw. It almost cost them in the 2017 national title game. Yeah, we don't know how that turned out, right? Shouldn't have brought that up, but Reichardt has been that dude for the Met Kicker. He's been really good. He's a, he's a graduate now. So, this is his final go around, and he always gives them an edge in games. Now, our guy, Peyton Woodring, has been really good the, the last you know two thirds of the season. He was a little shaky at first as a true freshman. He's really come on now. He hasn't been challenged in super big moments, but in the big moments that he has had to put up kicks, he's done really well. He's answered the know They weren't long kicks at all, but it was a hostile environment, and those are important kicks. He was able to make those, made some at Tennessee. So I I really like Peyton Woodward. I think he's going to be a really good kicker for us, but it's hard to say that we have the edge there when it comes to the place kickers. Reichardt has been that good but we need to win the turnover battle. We can't commit those debilitating turnovers. That's the case in every single game, especially when the margins are this small. Those kind of things, special teams play, turnovers, penalties, those can be decisive factors. I like our odds there. We've been really good in not turning the football over this year. We've been really good in forcing turnovers. We are one of the top teams in the country in forcing interceptions. We've got 12 on the year. We don't force as many fumbles, but that's more a, a function of luck, in my opinion. Yeah, like you can force fumbles, especially if you're rushing the passer. And since we don't rush the passer as well, we, like, we don't knock the ball loose from the quarterback as often as a lot of other teams do. But we, we have done a good job of, of, of forcing interceptions this year. But just win the turnover battle. Don't commit the debilitating turnovers. Try to force those key turnovers. Play a clean game. I feel like I said that every week because it's important. Every every game, it matters. But again, when the margins are this tight, two really talented football teams two really well, coach football teams, those things can be decisive. But getting into the game plan specific stuff, with this Alabama offense, I think there's two general keys. Number one, limit the explosive plays. They make a living off those. Force them to go the length of the field on a consistent basis and string together those longer drives and force them to be efficient. Don't allow them to beat you being explosive. Force them to beat you being efficient because they do not do that nearly as well. And then key number two, force Jalen Milrow to become a drop back passer. How do you make Bama? Try to beat you being more efficient and keep them from being explosive. Keep them in the pocket and force them to beat you as a drop back passer. Play smart, disciplined football when you rush the passer. I think you do have to dial it up at times. I favor overload blitzes. I think that gives us a chance to keep him from exploiting rushing lanes, but also allowing somebody to come free and kind of unleash them after the passer because they don't protect especially well. Giving up a ton of sacks this year, especially Caden Proctor on the left there. So be controlled, but pick your spots and be aggressive when you need to be aggressive. And on the flip side, defensively, the key is going to be do not allow their two elite edge rushers, Dallas Turner and Chris Braswell, do not allow them to control this football game. How do you do that? You run the football, run it at them to slow them down. You use the screen game. You use the RPO game, specifically with the tight end H-back, especially when those guys have that player in-man coverage. And you just try to limit the opportunities they have to just pin their ears back and come after the quarterback with reckless abandon. And I think the, the next key... Run the football. Obviously, that will certainly help, but find a way to scheme the matchups that you want on the Alabama safeties and linebackers in the pass game. They can't hang. They cannot hang. Not against our skill players, not against Brock Bowers, not against Lab McConkie, not against Dominic Lovett. I imagine Alabama will go with some heavy zone coverages to try to keep us from doing that. They know what we want to do. I'm sure they know what we want to do. And they're going to try to keep us from doing that because they're going to try to help them out with some zone coverage looks. But Unfortunately for them, Carson Beck is a zone coverage killer. The dude will slice them up to pieces. And by doing that, then we might force them into some coverages that are more favorable to us to allow us to get those one-on-one matchups So run the football, exploit their zone coverage looks that they're probably going to try to throw at us early in the game and try to manufacture those looks against those Bama safeties and linebackers in the past game because we're going to hit those explosive plays if we can do that. All right, guys. uh, That's it, man. That's all I got for today. I tried to be as comprehensive as I possibly could, man. We gone about an hour and 15 minutes here, but we are not done this week on the Glory UJA podcast. Charlie will be back with me tomorrow for our championship week picks of the week, and that's where she and I will give you our final official SEC championship picks, so make sure to tune back in for that episode, we're gonna have a lot of great stuff for you, but I appreciate you guys, thanks for sticking this one out with me, I'll see you guys back tomorrow, and of course, as always, go dogs.